Long Beach Sermons, visit us at citychurchlongbeach.org. Uh, my name is Bill White. If I have not met you yet, I am one of the co-pastors here at City Church of Long Beach. Uh, our other fearless co-pastor, Brennan Rubio, is on vacation this week, which is fantastic uh, for her. So in City Church of Long Beach, we're a radically welcoming community on the journey towards Jesus, joining him in the renewal of all things. That's what we're all about today and every day. Uh, and we've got a bunch of folks here who are new from our kids camp, and we want to say a special welcome to you folks, and especially to your kiddos. It was such a great week. Oh my gosh, it was, it was super fun. So we're going to pray for the kids now, and then let them go out and play on the jumpers. Uh, Alex uh, Alvarado is going to pray for our kiddos. Uh, if you'd welcome Alex up. Alex, is this your first time praying in front of church? How are you feeling about that? <laughs> okay. All right. Come on. You got this, baby. You got this. All right. That's great. Uh, Father God, uh, pray for our kids and in this community and also for the, the queer kids around the world to get them safe and, and all the kids who, you know, are in schools trying to stay safe from the shooters and mass shooting of this world. I protect them and um, the parents give them strength and guidance for the kids as well. Amen. 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 So kiddos, you can go with Alex and the team if you want to go out and play on some jumpers and have some fun. So good. So good. Um, so we are in a sermon series now that begins today, uh, and it's on the book of Exodus. The book of Exodus is it's kind of like the rest of the Bible which means it's a little on the weird side. I mean, there's a lot of weird stuff in this book, and we're going to look at some of it over the course of the summer, um, but our sermon series is about intersections. It's this, it's this idea that God is awesome and at work, and kind of laying the groundwork for Christ to come and bring redemption and healing to the world, and at the same time, things are really wacky, weird, and often terrible. And there's, Exodus is this intersection of our real lives and a very real God. And so the way the book of Exodus starts off, it starts off in, well, so you're just going to have to bear with me, all right? So this is, so in the, it's a story that I grew up as a good white evangelical conservative. In my world, was a, it was a very quaint story. It was very heartwarming. A couple of women helped out, and God came through, and it was really lovely, you know. We, but the the story is actually different than that. It's really gritty. And there's a lot of nuance to this story at the very, it's the first chapter of the book of Exodus. And it sets up the whole book. And if we don't have eyes on it, then we think the whole book is just sort of quaint. And we think God's kind of nice. And that the world's like, okay, every now and then something weird happens or something bad happens. But Exodus, that's not the story it's telling. It's telling a story that there are powers at work in this world that are wrecking people, 
that are ruining people, that are killing people, that are oppressing people, that are taking money from people. And that these, these systems in our world are they're wrong. And that we actually get to stand up and talk about this stuff because it's, it's real. And we get to talk about the intersection of where, where God plays into the true messiness of our world. And some will say that, you know, these aren't the things we're supposed to talk about in church, right? That it's kind of divisive to talk about racism, you know, or, or uh, poverty issues and economics and things like this. But how do you get away from the Bible? So there's a faith leader named Kat Armas who's written a book called Avalita Faith, which is a wonderful book. Um, kind of, for those who are familiar, it's Mujerista Theology, which is looking at the gospel of Jesus from a feminist Latina perspective. And she has informed a lot of the thinking around this particular message today. And I want to start off with a, a quote from her book. Um, she says this, when I began telling the truth, about my experiences with racism and sexism in the church, I was quickly labeled divisive. However, I always wonder why folks are so quick to think that speaking out against things like sexism, racism, abuse, homophobia, ableism, and such is more divisive than actually being sexist, racist, abusive, homophobic, or ableist. Speaking out against injustice isn't what divides. Instead, acting in ways that are divisive does. Right? So she's saying, like, look, let's just talk about what's really there. Let's not sweep that under the rug. And so we come to this passage today that literally all my life until now, I'm 50. How old am I? 55, thank you. <laughs> Somebody remembered. Um, has been quaint, and it's no longer quaint, for which I am very grateful. So if you would welcome up our friend Arturo Macias, who's going to read scripture for us today. Come on down. Uh, and often we stand uh, in honor of God's word. You don't have to, but you're invited to. So this is from Exodus chapter 1. So the Egyptians put slave masters over the Israelites to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labors, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Sipra and Pua, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it is a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. 
They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. <laughs> so the king was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. People of God, this is the word of God. You may be seated. Thanks, Arturo. Oh, there is so much. I wish we had more time. We don't. There is so much fun in this passage. It really is delightful. Um, you notice that Pharaoh is getting richer and richer, has to build store cities for all the money and all the grain and all the stuff while the people of Israel are being oppressed ruthlessly. And then he gets scared that there are going to be too many fighting men in Israel, and so he wants to kill them off, right? And he enlists these two midwives, the leader of the midwives, Shipra and Pua, to do his dirty work for him. It's super interesting. We, again, we, we can't get into all this stuff. There's so much in here, but um, here at the beginning of this book, the beginning of the Exodus story, which is a foundational piece of, of what it means to know God in, in the scriptures, it, it names these two women. You didn't used to name women. Like you can go through huge swaths of scripture and you never run into names of women. But God is saying, no, I see you. And God's breaking through even some of the patriarchy of the writers to say, no, 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 shut up. Put their name down, right? They, these, they matter, Shipra and Pua. They, they're key leaders in what's going on in my kingdom. And, and in this story, we're, we're going to talk just for a second about some of the, the ironies of, of the story. Um, it's a little bit like watching uh, any of the adults here go and see the movie like Inside Out. If you had kids, you probably saw Inside Out or even things like Finding Nemo, right? There's all this stuff that the good filmmakers put in there for the adults, right? The kids are like, oh, that was fun. Yeah, that was cute or whatever. But no, it's like we're crying or we're angry or, you know, we see ourselves in new, new lights. That's what this story is. Okay, so you can just read it through and it's quaint, or you can actually listen in and pick up some of the irony. For example, Pharaoh's like, we got to kill the boys. Those boys, ooh, they're dangerous. But who is it who resists Pharaoh? Who is it who tricks Pharaoh? Who is it who, who is leading the people of Israel? It's the women. <laughs> it's like to over, totally over his head. Totally misses that. Right? I mean, again, you're supposed to see these things and kind of laugh inwardly, but also it's going to turn around and give us some insights. And Pharaoh overestimates, he overestimates himself. This tends to be, I've heard, I have no experience with this, but sometimes is, is one of the weaknesses of, of males in power positions who have cultural dominance. Weird. But sometimes they overestimate themselves and they think because they said it, it should happen. I'm feeling a little bit targeted by this text, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> right? So Pharaoh's like, well, kill the boys. <laughs> like, really? You, th you thought that was going to happen? And then there are all the, like, did you see the insult? You laughed when we read, when Arturo read it, right? It was great, that moment when, when the, the midwives actually insult Pharaoh to his face. They're like, yeah, we don't know. I guess, I guess our women aren't like your women. You know, our women are like, they're really strong. You know, they're really awesome. 
<laughs> Pharaoh's like, huh. You know, he just doesn't get it. But here they are standing in the court of the most powerful person in their world, insulting him to his face. It's a beautiful thing. And we're supposed to see these things so that we can pick up God's heart for those who've been dealt great injustices. And what's happening here is that the, the people of Israel are, they help us understand what an oppressive system is. Now, again, I grew up in a world where there were no oppressive systems. There were also no gay people. I grew up in, in the West End of Richmond, Virginia. And there were also no people of color. Um, literally, that was my world. And so that, like, it was, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. They would take decades to understand, like, no, God actually sees through the systems you've set up that protect you and that protect your power, your money, your influence. Um, Lisa Sharon Harper, uh, who we often talk about around here. Uh, she's sort of one of the patron saints of City Church. So she talks about this idea of, of how to understand these things. When there are single cases of, an, of unhappiness, and that happens to all of us, right? You go through a divorce, man, that's hard, right? Or, or someone in your family has a really bad illness, right? That man. But when there are millions of cases of unhappiness that all flow along the exact same ruts and there are certain laws governing all this unhappiness for these millions of people, that's when you know there is a system of oppression at play. When you look at, for example, look at net worth in America by race. Oof. Look at uh, police violence, the, these sorts of things. And you realize when there are millions of cases of something and they all follow these predictable lines, this is not just a one-off. This is a system that's built. And there are a couple of uh, theoreticians, the scholars of equity, um, Rita Hardiman, Bailey Jackson, they write about how do you know what is a, a system of oppression? And they define it this way. Number one, there are four things. When a, a powerful group, perhaps because they have money or status or they're more, um, when a powerful group, um, they define what is normal, correct, and real with themselves at the center of it. All right, so that's the first. So the, the group in power defines what's normal, real, correct. Then, secondly, there are various forms of mistreatment for those who do not conform, who do not meet that. Um, the idea is you create laws and practices, standards of beauty, these sorts of things, so that the people of power, we, we do this, so, sometimes unwittingly, but we do this so that then we do not have to expend any personal effort to maintain the status quo, right? I could grow up in, in my part of town and not have to see people who are different than me, not have to think about 
the economic disparities, these sorts of things, right? I, it was effortless. Number three, the oppressed group starts to internalize the standards of the group in power so that then the oppressed help to oppress themselves, right? Feelings of unworthiness or I need to be different, I need to be straight, whatever it is, right? You internalize that and then finally, finally you manage the culture by the way you tell the stories what you put on in books and film and media, particularly what you write in, in the histories. And you erase the histories of those who are different, and you center the histories of those who are who in power. So then it perpetuates itself for future generations. All right, so those are the four, I mean, does this make sense? Am I talking to you? Right, I mean, we, this is what we see in our world. And this is what the people of Israel are experiencing in Egypt. Right? It's, just not, it's not just sort of one, oh, one, one Israelite you know, kind of ran out of money, had to hire himself out to an Egyptian who treated him bad. No, that's not what's going on here. There are millions of people following these same predictable lines that are leading to unhappiness. And it's a system that has been built, and we have built our own systems as a country and in all sorts of spaces. So let's think about how this plays out today. And there are a thousand ways, and honestly, you people know it better than I do. Okay? So I'm not, I am not pretending to be an expert. I'm a student. But this last week, I was on a call. Louis Staxton and Lisa Carpenter and I are in this uh, cross-cultural um, reconciliation cohort with a bunch of leaders from around L.A., we're on this call Thursday night, and the leader, Tracy Chanel, who'll be preaching here in a couple of weeks, um, she leads this conversation about what stories have people been following in the news over the last week. And so the first story that someone says, well, I've been following about that, that submarine, the Titan, right? Anybody hear about that? Yeah, let's talk about that. How do you feel about what, what's going on with that and what's not being reported? And so we have this really robust conversation and she brings out, uh, this is a, a leader that many of us follow on, um, on social media, uh, Dante Stewart. And Dante Stewart writes this on the, on the left, you see, it's okay to grieve that people have died and at the same time be angry that we live in a world that believes certain people deserve rescue while others experience abandonment. And he goes on and he writes this, because you knew in the, in the same week, there was a ship that capsized right in the Mediterranean with tons of migrants who died. They knew it beforehand. They had pictures of the boat and they could tell that it was gonna capsize, all this stuff, right? But how many of us followed that along in the news? How many articles were there about that? And so he writes, dozens of migrants, mostly women and children, are feared dead after drowning, fleeing, while trying to find a home. The debris of, ocean, of the Ocean Gate vessel was recovered in which five men died while seeking adventure. Both are tragedies and both must be grieved. But hear me clearly, it is okay to be angry 
that one was in the news and given governmental aid, while the others were left to fend for themselves. This is not a political statement by itself. This is a spiritual, ethical, and moral argument for me. Grief and anger are not opposites. They often go together. Like, why do we see so many stories about Ocean Gate? And so few about the many more lives that could have been saved. So Lewis uh, was in the group, and he just shared about how we love the, the clean, simple rescue. Right? Well, let's just go after those five people, plus they're rich, and we like rich people. Um, it, it's clean and it's simple. But if you're going to actually rescue migrants, whew, that's actually a lot of work. Why are they migrants? Why is there economic disparity? How do we do job training? How do we shift the economies of our world that value? So now we value people differently. These sorts of questions, they're big questions. And this is what our text in Exodus is inviting us to think about. To see even like simple news articles and go, what's going on here? What's not being spoken of? Who's not on the TV screen? It's really an invitation to look at the questions of power in our world and how that plays and how that gets used. When we see Jesus always is spending time with the powerless. He's always naming the power dynamics. Like you think of him like, they, like, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar trying to trap him? Well, hey, whose face is on that coin? Well, it's Caesar. Well, give to Caesar what is Caesar and to God what is God's. He's, he's playing with power dynamics. He's inverting. He's actually subverting what people thought of who is powerful. Is Caesar bigger than God? Oh, no. I'm, how do I think about that? What do I think about money? How do I handle my money? All these questions that Jesus constantly is asking by his actions, by his parables, and he's asking us. And in some ways, this story of Shipra and Pua, these midwives who are resisting the power at B, they're asking us today. I want to share a quote from Rich Viotas. Um, super thoughtful as he's thinking about this. All through Jesus's life, he was disarming the powers. Every time he compassionately placed his hand on a marginalized person, he was revolting against the powerful. Spiritual messaging that declared that some people in society were contaminated and unworthy of touch. Every time he welcomed a sinner as worthy of love and belonging, he was rebelling against the powers that neatly divide the world into us and them categories. And every time he showed solidarity with the poor, he was rising up against the powers of greed. Every time he loved a religious outsider, he was overthrowing the power of religiosity. Jesus was always overthrowing powers. Everything he did. Now, when we look at, back at our story here briefly of Shipra and Pua, these two midwives, how they, they resist, they don't do what Pharaoh says. 
I want to think just for a moment about how creative they are. I mean, they talk smack to Pharaoh, right? They don't do what Pharaoh says. They actually raise up other leaders. That's part of their process. But in some ways, it's, it can feel a bit problematic for, for us, regardless of how we come at this passage, because they don't necessarily do what we expect. They don't speak truth to power. They don't say to Pharaoh, hey, you're wrong. God's going to take you down. They actually don't do that. They could have. They didn't. You can or you can't. If there's some creativity going on here. Notice also that they lie. They break one of God's commands. It's coming up in just a few chapters. We'll look at it here in a couple of weeks. They just boldly like... Yeah, we don't know how these women keep having babies. I mean, maybe we're delivering them. But yeah, they're just super strong. They lie to Pharaoh's face. And what does God do? What does God think about lying? God blesses it. <laughs> God thinks it's awesome. Right? The very next verse is that God bless them. So those of us who who want to make sure we're doing everything right, like there's a right way to, like maybe there's not. I'm not sure what that is. And some of us who are like, you know, we've got this agenda. You have to speak truth to power. You have to do your, your progressive reform revolution this way. Well, maybe you don't. Maybe it's the people who are actually in the situation, particularly the ones who are feeling oppressed, who the system is working over, Maybe we follow their lead and let them set the pace. And we trust that God's at work and that they'll be super creative and come up with ways to, to change systems that are honoring to God and honoring to themselves. So there's, there's not like, we're, we're not coming out like, hey, this is the right answer. It's not. You're going to have to figure it out, and it's going to be hard, and it's going to be scary, and sometimes it doesn't work out. And yet God is in it, and Christ comes to show, like, this is how in it I am. So I want to, we're going to pause for a moment and uh, hear a story um, of someone who's just trying to figure it out, not some great big hero, just like a little shipro, a little pua. Uh, so if you would welcome Diana Rodriguez-Smith. Come on down. And again, I mean, the reason why we tell stories like Diana does not have all the answers, okay? Nope. I mean, or did, did you, did if you brought them, I'd be like stoked. No, none of that. Okay. Uh, but she's got a story, and it's a great story. So tell us a little bit about your involvement with City Church. How, when did you start coming to City Church? <gasps> Hi. <laughs> Lisa's here. Um, I started coming in, well, I, I used to go to Emmanuel Church. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that church. Um, but it was a brand <laughs> That was City a church, church that I came out of, and we, we started 10 years ago. But I started coming here in 2013, 2014. Okay, so yeah. so a long time. A long time ago. And have you been consistent ever since? I mean, we were until 2020. 
Oh. Um, we recently left. I am a wife, a mother, um, a student, and a Christian. And so my number one priority was making sure that my husband and my boys were seen amongst themselves. If you guys remember 2020, it was the summer of unrest and there was so much tensions within the Black, Latino, Latinx community. So we needed to go to a space that was reflective of my husband and my sons and myself. So I reached out to you and Brenna and you guys told me to go to this amazing church and now we're there. So huh, you're saying that you stopped going to our church? I didn't know. I mean, we love it. I love it here. This is... <laughs> No, but I love this story, right? She's like, you know, I need to be a place with black people. Yeah. And that yeah. ain't us. I'm sorry. I mean, God, I mean, God bless us. But I mean, yeah. It was restoration for our soul. Mm. I can tell you that in 2020. I needed, my boys needed to see themselves. Yeah. And I remember uh, we would put on, I think it was just streaming through YouTube. And my little boy would come up to me and say, oh, that's daddy's church. <laughs> because it was a black pastor. And I was like, it's our church. So yeah, yeah it's important for me to see that. It's beautiful. And we would love to be more black. And we're, you know, we're just, <laughs> but like, look at this, like, you know? So anyway, we're, anyway, another story for another day. But tell us a little bit. Um, so in your life, there have been times when you felt more at home in your skin and in your location and times when you've been moved out of that. Uh, just tell us a little bit about maybe one of those situations. Sure. Um, well, as you mentioned, we live in a press society. That is a fact. Um, I am a product of code switching. Um, my family moved up socioeconomic status. I was born in Compton, lived in a Latinx community for many years. And at the tender age of 12, I moved to Norco, California, which is predominantly white, early 90s. We were the only people of color. And that was challenging. Um, we had to learn how to assimilate fast. So we no longer watched Univision, Telemundo, oh. Sábado Gigante. We let go of our culture, sadly. Wow. And the only thing we held on to was our food, um, which is great, but we had to assimilate quickly. And so we had to find our identity, yeah. and we found it through the Christian church. So we grabbed on to Christ, and we became neither Jew nor Gentile, and we became Christians. Yeah. So I held on to that. And I held on to that identity for years that I ended up going to a private Christian university in Southern California on a scholarship holding on to my Christian identity. And how did that go? Oh, <laughs> being a person of color in the early 2000s at a Christian faith institution was really challenging. Um, just my mere presence was such a, um, there was so much dissonance in the community of me just showing up in these spaces. I had to constantly prove that I was intelligent. I had to prove that my seat was worthy. Uh, there was one situation, if I can share. Mm. There was one situation that happened in class, at a communications class. I'm a communications major. I have a communications degree. And we were talking about affirmative action. And this was a class of 25 students in it. I was one person of color with my fellow Asian friend. And the professor, and you know, he's asking, how does everyone feel? And everyone's like, oh, it's horrible. You know, why are they taking our spots? And I'm sitting there just shrinking in my chair, feeling so not worthy. And this professor has the audacity to turn to me and say, what do you think about it? And I was just, I was, I felt so belittled. And oh, that, was, <laughs> that was in 2003. And I never forgot it. So challenging. Yeah, right. It, it, it's real, 
And again, there's, there's not like, oh, well, this is the right answer. Right. Just do this, and then right. it'll, like, no, you, you have to sort that through. So, so you, ha- you have had to sort through yeah. these sorts of things in different settings, um, in, you know, getting an advanced degree and raising family with two beautiful boys. Um, tell us a little bit about a situation or two where you've felt like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how do I deal with this now? Um, I'm currently in a master's program, getting my master's in counseling. Um, (laughs) Thank you. It's exciting. It's very social justice focused, and it's given me the vocabulary and the agency I need to talk. Um, Is it at a private Christian school? No. (laughs) No offense. You know, no offense. (laughs) I'm going to Cal State Long Beach. I love it. It's restoration of my soul. Um, So I've had to learn through the years how to code switch, how to be professional Diana, Latina Diana, and it's been a challenge. Um, There was a single situation that happened recently. My son is six years old. He was in kindergarten, and I went to back to school night. And, you know, I was sitting there with my husband, my family, and we're sitting around, looking around. I think there's a picture of it. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a picture of, yeah, right here. So as you walk in, you know, you see these cute little dolls, but they're all manila-colored white paper. And as I'm sitting in my seat, I'm just like, oh, really annoyed. Because <laughs> I'm looking around the class, and the class is diverse. And this is at a school here in LBUSD, just to mention. <laughs> but um, I felt the courage because I'm in the master's program to speak on that. Had I not had that advocacy of knowing what I'm talking about, I probably would have just sat there in shame like I did in 2003. So I came up to the the teacher and I said, you know, this is great, but I don't see my son represented here. You know, he's beautiful. He's black and Mexican. Uh, There's other kids that look different colors than this color here. So what can we do? She was really defensive. You know, white lady. She, she loved. She loved that idea. She was not happy. Well, the school doesn't give me supplies. I'm like, I got you. <laughs> so <laughs> I sent an email to all the parents, and I told them how I felt. And you know, there were a few parents that are backing me up. I then went met with the principal, and I said, "This is unacceptable. What era are we in? Did we not learn anything from 2020?" Um, I was livid, and so I, I used that fire, took my kid out of school. I think there's another picture here's, and here's took him to <laughs> took him to Lakeshore and made sure we had a full conversation about what it means to be a person of color and the beauty in that. So we went shopping. We bought all the supplies. I gave it to the teacher. She was thankful. And then at the end of the year recently, they did these self portraits um, to comes. represent themselves. <laughs> and so each kid had a chance to kind of paint the skin tone that they are. And I don't know if that was because of me, but I'm taking credit. Right? <laughs> 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 I mean, you, do you see? Like, this is like there's not a right answer. There's not like a simple thing, but it's like this is it. Like, I got to do something. This matters. I, I'm, I'm in it for my kid. For I'm in it for me. We're so proud of you. So proud of you. Um, so typically when folks come up and share a story, we've been trying to close with giving them the chance to ask a question, which I'm slightly afraid of, but. Yeah, I've been pondering about this. Um, and you know, I know Bill, <laughs> he married us. I've known Bill for many years, but I'm wondering as a white male who has agency in this world, why are you so interested in people of color and people in the margins, if I can ask? What is your honest why? 
That's a great question. Um, you know, I, my, my wife has great passion and desire and always has, and has been a woman who works for justice. I have stayed on the sidelines mostly. Um, and I think, and, and that's really sad. Um, I think it was actually when my son came out that I realized uh, I need to get in the game. And it's, it's, it's a big game. There's a, like, Jesus is in the game, and I need to get in the game with Jesus. And so I think for me, that's started a journey of figuring out, like, okay, I, d I don't care anymore uh, what my white friends and family think. And so I still care, honestly, let's be honest, <laughs> let's, let's be honest. Um, but I said that at least, and which helped me to move towards that at least, you know, and so I think it's, it's been a journey and has a lot to learn. So, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much. Um, you are such a gift to us. We appreciate you. So. Thank you. Okay. So, okay. Um, yeah, that was a really beautiful day, Anna. Uh, so I, I just want to, I want to close by giving us a few minutes just to think, uh, to think about where, where we are ourselves in terms of the power and the privilege that we have. Uh, some of us here have a lot of privilege, a lot of power. Uh, and some of us have very, very little. And most of us are somewhere in one setting like this and another setting like that. Uh, and I, I'm just trying to figure out me. Uh, you get to figure out you. Uh, and you're, you're not going to get it right all the time. Hopefully you get it right some of the time, but you'll grow, right? Um, and so I wanted to share just a couple of thoughts. Uh, so for some of us who experience being less privileged, um, I am here as a learner and learning from friends and mentors who share Things like endure. Sometimes you just got to make it another day. And today is your day to endure. Um, Self-care. Uh, where's, where's Yvonne? Yvonne Printers is, uh, she's looking at starting a group. She's thinking about it, so don't pressure her. But she's looking at starting a group for people of color to do self-care as an act of resistance to care for yourself so you'll be strong for the journey, right? Uh, because you're gonna need community. You, you, you won't make it alone. And then uh, Friday night, Katie and I watched uh, a documentary on, um, on Bishop uh, Desmond Tutu and some of the work that he's done in South Africa and around the world. And, you know, one of the things that he constantly said is that 
you can't become like the people who oppress you. Hate doesn't work. Um, and it's really hard to love. But it's, it's the way. It is the way of Jesus. And it's the way that brings change. Um, and if you're looking to be reminded of this, watch his documentary, read one of his books. Um, for some of us who feel a lot more towards the top, having a lot of privilege, uh, a couple of thoughts. Um, be led. Let, let someone else teach you where to go. And just shut up. And just say, okay. Okay, I'll, I'll trust, right? Um, prioritize listening to people who are different than you. For me, this became a very simple practice. I, I write down all the books I read and who the authors are. And I keep a list. So every time... I read a lot, and every time I read a book, I'm reminded, like, oh, that's right. I'm, my, my goal is to read the vast majority of everything, at least 80%, uh, from people of color, women, and queer folks, so I can learn, because I've got a lot of years of not reading that, not learning. So you, you find ways. You curate your news feed to make sure you're listening to voices different than your own and you're learning. And then uh, I really want to encourage you to give money away, sacrificially. And if you can, give it to groups that are led by people of color, by queer folks, by women, folks who have not had the, um, the advantages. Right, so when we started City Church, Jason Brown and I, uh, co-pastors, white guys in our 40s. A lot of good luck. It, it just We just got lucky with a lot of good fundraising. We knew a lot of white people with a lot of money. We were part of a system that supported itself. And so it was a few years ago that uh, Lisa Carpenter, uh, who's in the back, who is back from Brazil, after two years, good to have you and the family back. Hey, Alex, good to see you guys and your boys. Um, Lisa led us through uh, a process of reparations and saying, hey, we're going to take some of that bulk of money that Bill and Jason raised because it came so easy. And we're going to give that. We're going to disperse that. We're going we're to spend down our savings so that we can help raise up other organizations that are led by people who are doing ministry who didn't have the networks that we had. So if, if you have privilege, if you have money, give sacrificially. Uh, and then most of us are, are somewhere in the middle, right? And things, it, it's not all neat and clean. Figure it out. You know, sometimes you resist, you stand up, and you fight for your right. And other times you be quiet, you listen, and you be led. I, I don't know those answers. Um, you'll have to follow, follow Jesus there. Uh, and that's why he came, to lead us into this whole new way.